It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here. We're going to answer some questions from the listeners, talk about the recent security news, and a whole lot more. Will you stay here? Because Security Now is coming up next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 405, recorded May 22nd, 2013. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 168. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit. And use the offer code SN20. It's time for Security Now with Mr. Steve Gibson, the explainer-in-chief, the guy who protects our privacy and security online. Hey, Mr. G, how are you today? Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again for episode 405. You 405. Wow. The missing episode 404. Did we just skip Uh, right over that? 404 not found. Actually, it would have been fun, (laughs) although it would have been, been a constant source of concern for people who are like i mean we would have been getting email for the rest of our lives hey where's episode 404 it's like okay so yeah it's like a hotel i had doesn't have a 13th floor you know exactly i as and i had a great time last week and i know you you did it google io so i had a blast and i got me one of them uh chromebook pixels yep yeah that's about all I can say about it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a Q&A episode, our number 168. And uh, some interesting news. We didn't have a huge news week. The thing that really excited me, I, I couldn't believe it when I caught up with this news. This apparently was, it's a few months old. So it's just as well that I hadn't mentioned it before because it turned out to be too good to be true. Oh. Kind Kind of. And that is that our friend Jonathan Mayer, who is not Jonathan Meyer or Mayer, you know, not not the vocalist, but uh, the the security guy, the security and privacy guy at Stanford, he's the person who reversed the mistake that Adobe made, essentially. And we've talked about Jonathan through the years because he's been very active in privacy. He reversed the mistake that Adobe that I'm sorry, not Adobe, Apache, the Apache server made on the fact that it was going to be removing the the presence of the DNT header from IE10 because the you know somebody at Mozilla who was also or I don't know if they were at Mozilla but one of the other people involved in, in the Apache project just decided they wanted to you know punish Microsoft for not su- getting sufficient end user permission anyway. I installed, and we talked last week about the most recent release of Firefox, version 21. So when I saw that Firefox version 22 would be by default blocking third-party cookies, I was very excited. Because that's big. I mean, that's huge. And it may be 
a bridge too far. It may be, you know, more than we can get, but we're getting very close. Right now, the only browser that does this is Safari. But that's saying a lot. I mean, Safari blocks third-party cookies by default. So that's a big deal. So Jonathan blogged in February of this year, so several months back, that this what this had been submitted into the flow of Firefoxia, which is moving forward, and it would be coming out in version uh, in in yes in version twenty two of Firefox. He said, and this was on the twenty second of February. His uh, he has uh, webpolicy.org is his is his blog, and he and. The title of the blog was The New Firefox Cookie Policy. He said the default Firefox cookie policy will, beginning with release 22, more closely reflect user privacy preferences. This mini-fac, and I'm just going to read two, the first two, addresses some of the questions that I've received from Mozilla's web developers and users. First question. How does the new Firefox cookie policy work? Answer, roughly, only websites that you actually visit can use cookies to track you across the web. More precisely, if content has a first-party origin, nothing changes. Content from a third-party origin only has cookie permissions if its origin already has at least one cookie set. Now, we'll come back to that in a second. And then second question, how does Firefox's new policy compare to the other major browsers? So his answer was Chrome allows all cookies. Internet Explorer, cookie permissions vary by the so-called P3P compact policy which is something we've discussed in the past, but continuing, it says, in practice, almost all third-party tracking cookies are allowed. And Safari, first-party content has cookie permissions. Third-party content has only cookie permissions if the content already has at least one cookie set. In short, the new Firefox policy is a slightly relaxed version of the Safari policy. So I was... Very excited. This was this got into my notes late last week, and I was excited. And then I saw an update. Um, let's see, yesterday, five twenty-one. Uh, also, Jonathan's most recent posting said um, the issue. Oh, well, it it explained that the CTO of Mozilla had said he wants to wait for one more cycle. Now, I picked up on this because it was all over the place. It was businessinsider.com talked about it, adexchanger.com. I mean, Firefox changing their policy to block third-party cookies is regarded as a big deal. IE has tried a couple times. Some betas of IE did have third-party cookies initially blocked. No one ever seems to make it out of the gate. Something happens. And so it just must be that, you know, somewhere there are major advertising gods that descend on the hapless web developers who are trying to ship a browser like Safari, 
which, you know, in all of its incarnations acts this way and they get stopped. So I'm holding my breath that that this can happen because um, Jonathan's feeling is that it is necessary to go further than the than the do not track request and and actively decline to accept cookies from sites you don't visit and that's the way microsoft has i mean i'm sorry that's the way apple expresses it and mozilla expresses it it's very cleanly you know do you want to accept cookies from sites you don't visit and it's easy to say uh no why would i want that the reason so, that Mozilla is de- delaying it is because of false positives and false negatives. You, uh, do, do you not okay. buy that as a? Um, there, yeah. I, I mean, maybe. Um, Jonathan's argument is: well, this is the way Safari has always worked, and it doesn't seem to be a problem for the entire, you know, anything anywhere in the Safari ecosystem. Now. There well, you is, might have a problem. Don't you serve images from a separate server than your main server? Yeah, but it's got nothing to do with cookies. Cookies are just for tracking. Well, sometimes Co- people just, use cookies in that. That was the example that uh, Mozilla gave, Brian Ike gave. So, so okay, so w- w- there is a subtlety that's interesting, which is that, and, and this is something I've looked at extensively. Five years ago, I wrote that that. Uh, cookie forensics, a set of cookie forensics pages, and we deeply characterized all the different browsers. Not a single one of them was bug free. We were looking for like cookie handling bugs. Every single browser had problems with like, like things like you could sneak a cookie through in the fave icon query and you know, and the browser wasn't blocking that. Little little freaky things like that, where if someone knew about these things, and presumably everyone does, but though they don't talk about them, you could arrange to get cookies in. One browser, and I believe it is only IE, has an because for a while there were some smart security people at, at Microsoft. It notices the what's called the the cookies context. That is, it notices if you acquire a cookie in a first-party context, it flags the cookie as having first having been acquired in a first-party context, and then it will not send it back in a third-party context, which is very cool because the problem with the Safari approach and this nascent Firefox approach is that it is still very easy to sneak. It's very easy for third parties to sneak tracking cookies in. All well, see, that's, have- that's the other question is if you do this, doesn't it just uh, force them underground and use to use other methods to do the same thing? Perhaps. I with a cookie, think, I know it's I being set think, and I can check it. I, my, my, my feeling is I think Jonathan is right. People don't want tracking, and it is only by virtue of the default setting that third-party cookies are enabled, and if they were just disabled, the world wouldn't collapse, the the advertising ecosystem would not die, everything would be just fine, and 
there would be less tracking and profiling on the internet. You know, it's obviously it's something I yeah, have. There'd also be less analytics, and a lot of the free content that you enjoy would go away. But I don't okay. think any of it. No, does my that, point doesn't is, that kill Google nothing Analytics? Would, nothing would change. Doesn't no, kill Google because, Analytics? No, because um, Google Analytics is on, is hosted on the pages, right. and and is making queries itself, and it's running script in it's JavaScript, your browser. right? Yeah, so it's you know it's 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 got a grip on everything going on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if it doesn't break that kind of analytics, I, uh, it's not as much of a problem. Not going to break anything. None okay. of this breaks anything. This is just advertisers not wanting any pushback at all, and they're obviously very powerful since only Apple seems to have pulled this off. We'll see whether the Mozilla folks are able to do it. I it would be wonderful if they did. Remember that there's a I've got a graphic on my site on the browser statistics page of the cookie pages that shows the from all the visitors we have about 66,000 unique visitors a week and it shows across the browsers who has third-party cookies enabled and the bar for safari is is stands alone compared to all the other bars just because that's the default and it would be wonderful if if firefox had the guts to pull this off, did, and then maybe Opera could follow suit, and then finally IE would be the odd man out. It'll be really interesting to see if Google ever makes this change because, of course, <laughs> advertising is their entire revenue model. Now, last week, I don't know if you picked up on this, Leo. I'm, I, was, I was wishing that I had you <laughs> and I as both just because this was interesting. It, but you may have seen it go by because there was a, a lot of attention given to this. It was, it was discovered, and in fact, Ars Technica picked up on it days later, which gave it several more news cycles. It was discovered that links people send each other in Skype chat messages are visited by Microsoft's servers. So, so uh, the highs security that we've spoken of often was the first was the first official security company to to pick up on this. They deliberately set up some links, even including logon material in the URL, and skyped and used Skype chat to send this to someone, and then monitored their logs. And sure enough, a few hours later, a server in Redmond uh, with an IP allocated to Microsoft's network, visited those links. Ars Technica picked up on it, duplicated the experiment, and and verified it. And there was, of course, lots of a whole flurry of, of back and forth from this because people were, were upset that Microsoft was following links that were being sent in Skype messages. And the, the, the point that I intended to make last week when we talked about this was was and and there were people saying well you know microsoft is doing this to to you know remove spam from skype and to control the content their eula states that you know they have the right to scan messages and so forth and so my takeaway was just to note that they are able to do this that, I mean, it's not like they could or they might. It's that they are. So, so I just wanted to to come back and and dot that I and cross the T. That you know, it's it's not 
why they're doing it or what they're doing with it, but just absolute evidence that Skype chat text messages are being read in Redmond. It's not like they're being kept encrypted or they're, they're, you know, they will only decrypt them if the government requires them to and so forth, but that they can, which is um, a segue into next week's podcast because there is a very nice-looking, very secure chat technology, chat system called CryptoCat, C-R-Y-P-T-O dot C-A-T. And so they've they've published everything enough that I can do a full analysis of its security. So that will be the topic for next week because in response to last week's discussion of this, there was just a, a bunch of email in the mailbag and through Twitter saying, okay, is there a secure chat solution? And I believe there is. We'll have, we'll have the full readout about CryptoCat next week. But uh, this doesn't necessarily speak to uh, voice calling on Skype. It's, it's, the, it's the messaging, the text Correct. messaging. Correct. Yeah. And it's unclear where the where this all happens. It could be it probably is part of Microsoft's attempt to prevent the spamming of uh, malware through links. So it's probably what it's we what they think it's likely doing is is checking it against Microsoft's uh, Site Advisor database. Yeah, um, although it is doing it with several hours of delay. So well, either, there's a lot of people a, doing it. I was going to say <laughs> there's a backlog. Uh, the other issue is it's not clear where the request is coming from. It could be coming from, for instance, the receiving client that, you know, Skype could be then unencrypting, looking at it and saying, okay, I see, and in fact, this seems like a likely scenario. I see five links in this message. Let me run a scan against these links against Microsoft's Site Advisor to make sure they're not malware. Yeah, that came up. And unfortunately, I don't remember what the argument was. I think that somebody checked for that and ruled that out. I that think we don't know. Looking. All they know is there was a hit. They don't, you know, they they created a phony page and they got a hit from Redmond. And the only way that that link was disseminated was through, uh, presu- you know, obviously not encrypted Skype transmission. I think the real right. issue is the larger issue, which, which is that the, it's clear then that Microsoft could, in theory, see everything. Maybe they're only checking those links for malware. You know, they might, right. there might be, for instance, a regular expression parser in the Skype uh, engine, recipient engine, that says, I see, a re- I see a URL here, let me check it against Site Advisor. Right. So I just, I just don't want people, I mean, the real issue is the p- potential that Microsoft could be spying on you. And right. as a lot of people pointed out, hey, that's what happens with closed source software. If you think about it, <laughs> any client you're running on your computer, yes. if you don't see the source code, could be doing anything. Well, and that's why uh, a, a solution like CryptoCat, which is open source right. and, and multi-platform. Right. I mean, it's for, for example, I'm still waiting to hear back from the BitTorrent guys on their protocol. We have a, couple, we have a, a question or two in this week's Q&A about, that are addressing questions about BitTorrent Sync. And it's like, well, we've, got, we've gone as far as we can at this point until we get a readout. Everything looks good, but... You know, I, I need the details in order to see whether I can say yes, you know, given what we know, they absolutely did everything right. Um, also, there's been all this brouhaha about the Department of Justice um, and the Associated Press. And the 
first stories that I read said that the DOJ had the conversations that the Associated Press reporters were having, and later stories corrected that. So I wanted to update our coverage and say, yes, that's correct. All they got, what the Department of Justice got, and it was their confession. I mean, they wrote a letter to the AP saying, by the way, we have all of this, you know, you know, way after the fact, but they did acknowledge that, that it was phone call records. That is, you know, who the AP reporters called, not the content of their conversation. So I just wanted to correct that. And then I just I looked at this and I thought I just shook my head. I thought, well, this is not going to be a, a surprise to any of our listeners. Uh, so I called this the uh-huh news of the week. And this was picked up. Uh, this is in BBC uh, Business News. The title uh, was Contactless Charging Errors at Marks and Spencer, which is a chain of stores uh, in the U.K., And so the story is some Marks and Spencer customers have told the BBC of cases where the chain's contactless payment terminals have taken money from cards other than the ones intended for payment. (laughs) So these are are, uh, near-field communications cards. And so the story, uh, to give our listeners a sense for this, it says... Cards are supposed to be within about four centimeters of the front of the contactless terminal to work. But some customers say payments have been taken from cards while in purses and wallets at much greater distances. M&S, which is Marks and Spencer, said its systems had been extensively tested and were robust. Marks & Spencer recently rolled out the contactless payment system to 644 UK stores. The system uses something called near-field communication to identify a card and take payment. Rosemary from Sussex got a shock when she tried to pay by chip and pin at her local store. She believes her contactless smile card was much more than four centimeters away from the terminal when she visited Marks & Spencer in Chichester in April and tried to pay with her regular Lloyd's debit card. She told BBC Radio 4's Moneybox program, quote, I put my card into the reader and the assistant was asking whether or not I wanted cash back. (laughs) She said, before I could answer, the transaction came up as complete and the till issued a receipt, so I hadn't put in a pin at all at that stage. I queried it with the, an assistant, and she looked rather puzzled and looked at the receipt and compared it to my card and realized that the numbers didn't tally. Rosemary, however, recognized that the four digits on the till receipt belonged to a different smile card she had in her purse, which she was holding in her other hand. She had not realized until then that this card was able to make contactless payments. Even when she realized it could, she thought she thought her purse was about a foot or more away from the terminal when the payment was taken. So anyway, there are other. This story continues talking about other uh, M&S customers 
who found double payments on their bills from Marx uh, and Spencer, where somehow a card that they had not intended to use purchased the item. Then they purchased it again with the card they had intended to use. So, you know, this is the this is the, the fundamental problem with radio is that that it's just not precise enough. In order for the receiver to be robust and sensitive enough to pick up the card with sufficient reliability in any orientation, it's going to have to be sufficiently sensitive to be able to to pick up the card in an ideal orientation further away. And it's just a bad idea. This whole notion of, you know, oh, the magic of it just, you know, being nearby and working is is crazy. So Well, it, and that's it, why they, they, they limit the transactions to 20 pounds and they require a pin. Uh, I'm not sure what happened with the pin on this one. Maybe yeah, somebody saw the pin. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently didn't need it. Uh, yeah, uh, it does, another... though. I saw, somebody saw the pin, probably. I would guess. Not always. Yeah, well, so Craig P. says not does not always require a pin. I thought that was the general idea, but maybe not. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, there, there, there's this aspect of glamour where, you you know, they want it to be magical, where you just sort of wave the card yeah. by the terminal. And it's like, oh, <laughs> and the money jumps you across. Want a pin. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you'd like to have a pin. Exactly. Yeah. Um, also, another a very highly tweeted note came from the the runner up essentially in intel's international science and engineering fair and the only thing i could think is this is another example of a really good pr firm at work because this thing was just it got an amazing amount of coverage for really a non event now i guess the the event is that the woman who or the the young she's a woman girl that's why Okay, a young and girl. She's, it's, and she's 18. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so that's 18, cool. And so she did something working in a in a nanotechnology lab where she produced a super capacitor. And I mean, I'm not t- taking anything away from that effort at all. That's not what I mean. But the headlines were 18 year olds invention can recharge a cell phone right. in 30 seconds, right. which I is nonsense. Yeah. You know, and it's like, oh, okay, no. Well, what but, if you know. what if you built the uh, what if you built the supercapacitor into the phone char- and then charged it and then had it trickle charge the lithium ion or something like that? That's what I got the impression she was putting the supercapacitor. I don't know. I didn't read it very no. closely. I mean, this was just it was. It, We've talked about okay, this so, before. Yeah, all this was was this was a story about someone created a supercapacitor. Except that, and it's like okay, <laughs> she and didn't. she's an eighteen-year-old girl, right? Um, and I think that's great, but but th- there was a sense of this was actually revolutionary, and it came from an eighteen-year-old girl, and it is actually, as far as we know, not revolutionary. You've been it's talking just, about you talked about this two years ago. It's a, I know. It's a nice supercapacitor. So, <laughs> so that's, all right. So she didn't do anything new. No. No. She's right. just young. And so. Well, it's I a good story. And you know how yeah. sometimes the press doesn't really know that this isn't new. No. And so what happened is our listeners tweeted me like crazy. Because like, we, <gasps> we know you're interested in supercapacitors. Absolutely. Right. And so thank you for that. And just so everyone knows, 
we now have another supercapacitor in the world. <laughs> okay. I have my supercapacitor screwdriver that charges very, very quickly. <laughs> well, that means, yes, and I'm not buying an e-car because I'm waiting. I mean, right. there's we're seeing, we talked about it in the last couple of weeks, we're seeing tremendous effort now expended in electrochemical storage and electrostatic storage. These are going to move forward, and the nature of a car is that you can't just swap out the energy source with a better one. You know, it'd be like, you know, it's like, you know, is your car diesel or not? I mean, you know, you've got to give it the proper kind of fuel, and you just can't, you know, change your mind. So, so anyway, I, I'm waiting because I just think we're still on, we're on the cusp of a real breakthrough in in some sort of car, you know, automotive compatible energy storage right and that's good i did see a weird note about i don't remember what country it was somebody was talking about storing excess energy by pumping the air out of a container at the bottom of the ocean and the idea would be they would like pull the they would pull the water out of the container and then the ocean's pressure to get back in the container would run turbines and it's like, well, okay, there's an innovative... A, but that's a battery. That's not a creator of energy. It's a way of storing energy. Correct. Because you have to pump exactly. the energy. Pump the stuff out uses the energy. Exactly. There's so lots it's, of... It's, this, this goes back to the Greeks. Yeah. Well, in fact, <laughs> in fact, there have there have been efforts to, like, pressurize, put store pressure, you know, to store air under pressure in the ground. Right. And then have it come back out. It's right. like, okay, I don't yeah. know. How you cl- plug all the leaks? You know, you gophers are going to have an interesting. If you, if you think about it, you know, if you hand cranked water up into a tank, yep, <laughs> you're storing the energy that you use to hand crank it up, and then at a later yep. time you can release that energy by releasing the water and having it turn a little water wheel. And yes. there you go, or, you've invented gee, the battery. Hydroelectric dams. <laughs> How do you think those function? There you go. <laughs> there we go. There you go. So, askmrwizard.com is still cranking away. He wanted me to note that he finished episode 26 and 13 videos for episode 26. That was one of our classic How the Internet Works series. So for those of you who have been enjoying the AskMrWizard.com series, if you go to AskMrWizard.com slash security now, that'll take you there. And he's got a bunch of links um, and for, so he's got both episode 25 and 26, and I assume he's working on 27 because it was, I believe, a three-part series where we covered sort of a like the entire fundamental architecture from packets to routing to you know ports and everything about how the networks and he's animated graphics to go along with it. And he puts ads just so so people understand. He puts ads in it. This is why. He's doing. This. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah, he's making a little money on it. That's all right. That's completely cool. legitimate. Yep. So do we. Yeah. Um, and I did tweet a, a project that I thought was very nice. So it's a Kickstarter project. Um, it's called Meta M E T A, the most advanced augmented reality interface. And I don't know if Meta is an acronym. I can't. Or maybe most. Then. I don't know. I don't see how you can get meta out of the most advanced augmented reality interface, but they are very nice looking glasses and they put together a compelling video and they've got a bunch of smart 
um, augmented reality people on the team. The idea being you've got essentially what looks like a stereo camera looking down in front of you. And what's so cool is you can use your hands to manipulate stuff in the air in front of you. And there's one great picture on there that shows like a person putting his hand out and like each of his fingers is circled with a different color. And then there's in, and in the video, he's like moving things around and they show a bunch of people messing around with some architecture, changing the planting of palm trees by reaching out into space and moving things around. So anyway, I thought it just cute and cool. Uh, and I tweeted it. So people who follow me already know about that. But those listeners who don't, um, and there are many more of you, uh, I wanted to sort of bring that to your attention. Now, Leo, Star Trek. <laughs> you went to see it. Oh, my goodness, yes. Opening day. Oh, good. Now, we. Th- what I'm seeing is I- I've looked at all the reviews. I've read all of the blog posting comments, and I completely, completely get it that there are purists who will never apparently forgive J.J. Abrams for not being Jonathan Frakes. And they they will not forgive, um, uh, what's his name, our new Kirk. Uh, I can't think of his name. I can't remember his name either. Yeah. He's good. I like him. Yes, he is. Well, for not being... Jean-Luc Picard, too. you know, yeah, for yeah. for not being Patrick Stewart. Right. You know, you, there, there were like the thinking man. Chris Pine, man's, it, yeah. Chris Pine yeah. yeah. There were the thinking man's Star Trek movies. And but I, the I series, like them as the, as the young. I mean, that's what's cool about it. The, oh, the Leo, young Spock and the young. It's, it's, like, it's like watching yes. the, uh, what is the Looney, the, the Aunt Looney Tunes that has the little, the little anim, anim, kids. <laughs> Animaniacs. I love, <laughs> it's the Animaniac Star Trek. I love these. The I mean, and I tweeted. Tiny I, tunes, I, that's I was it. exhausted after two hours of of watching this. I mean, it was fantastic. I loved this new movie. So I you know, and it, I mean, it is an an action no, sci fi no, adventure movie. No, no spoilers. No, I'm not. I'm being no, very careful. You would not never to say do it. that. Yeah. No, I would never do that. And and the. the for those people who see it, I, I will say I was a little disquieted by some of the decisions that were made, but so well, there's some massive you know. plot holes. But we, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it, what, you still, know, you know, it was what a you great expect? movie. It was fun. To, yeah. It was exciting. And what you can't get over, and I think this is, I to me, this is what the whole appeal of all the Star Trek movies were. Going back to the first one, is kind of the thrill of seeing these characters we love again. Yes. And, that, and, you know, I remember the first time Kirk and Spock, the originals, you know, Shatner and Nimoy, walked onto the big screen because it was many uh, years after the TV show. Uh, and, it, and it was just like, oh, old friend. <laughs> and this yes. has that same kind of thing. And they're, and they're smart. J.J.'s smart enough to throw in a lot of ref- references to, you know, old, older stuff. Oh, and, yeah, you're right. There, are, There's plenty of that for us. That's what makes us. it fun. Yeah. And the point I, I made to some people who I was talking to was... Look, this is for making money. I mean, this is to make <laughs> what? fundamentally. No, this is about money? money. That's what and... tracking cookies are for. They've got to stop this. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's, you know, he's creating a popular movie right. with broad appeal. Um, a, a good friend of mine took his mom, and his mom loved it. And now she want to sees she wants to see the first one, good. and also one of the older original movies good. that shall not be mentioned. So. 
And I must say, I, I give credit to somebody because there was some there were some things I read in anticipation of this that were clearly deliberately misleading about the plot. And I thought, ah, good for them. You know, they had me completely going off in the wrong direction because, um, you know, thinking that I knew something about it and and I didn't. So that, uh, that was good. I You know who I like best? or well, I shouldn't say best, but who I really am enjoying is Bones in this. Yeah, he's good. He's really good. And, of course, Scotty is fabulous. And and Bones is... But like, Bones is Bones. Yes, he... I'm a he's, doctor, he's, Jim, not a... Yes. God damn it, I'm a doctor, not a whatever. <laughs> we won't say. As, as, as I don't want no spoilers. <laughs> yes. I'm a doctor, okay, Jim. now, I know you're seated. You're on your inflatable on ball. ball. Yes. Okay, because this is this this is so painful, Leo. Oh, but no. Well, it's going to be really my ball, do, then. This is so painful. This is thanks to our friend Simon Zarafa, who who somehow finds what we would call humor. This is just awful. I mean, this is so awful I had to share it. Oh, great. Thanks. <laughs> An SQL query oh, no. goes into a bar. Yes. <laughs> I like it already. So we have a SQL <laughs> query goes into a bar, yeah. <laughs> walks up to two tables and asks, can I join you? Oh, terrible. Actually, pretty good. You know what? I like it. <laughs> can I goes to the two tables and says, "Can I join you?" Can I join you? So, for those who don't get it, it's like eh, that's, that's okay. You know, you're not supposed to. For those who do, ouch! I know. You know, I apologize. I still think that the um, little Bobby tables uh, XKCD comic book is the best. Yes, my that SQL was QL joke really, I've ever seen. It's brilliant. Um, Yes. I'll just show it for those who haven't seen it. It's XKCD number 327. Hi, this is your son's school. We're having some computer trouble. Oh, dear. Did he break something? In a way. Did you really name your son Robert Drop Table Students? Dash da- oh, yes. Little Bobby Tables, we call him. <laughs> well, we've lost this year's student records. I hope you're happy. And I hope you've learned to sanitize your database inputs. <laughs> Robert yeah. Tick. Paren, right, paren, colon, drop table, students, semicolon, dash, dash, question mark. Very clever. <laughs> Very clever. There's something about my SQL jokes that just crack me up. Okay, yes. so rarely do we ever hear any complaints from people that Spinrite did not spend long enough on their drive. Oh, no, I've never heard that. No. So Charles in Sydney asked me, he says, Hi, Steve. I refer to a recent podcast where a Spinrite user said it took Spinrite four weeks to recover his mother's drive. I recently ran Spinrite on a 60 gig PS3 disc, which was having problems, and it only took one hour to run and told me that I had one unrecoverable sector. Why didn't Spinrite take longer to try to recover this sector? <laughs> I assume it was because it somehow knew that no matter how hard it tried, it wouldn't be able to recover it. Is uh-huh. that right? And he says then, by the way, Spinrite fixed all the problems. Well, that's why I was having with the PS3 disc and everything works perfectly oh, now. Oh, okay. Horrible. Oh. What a fate. 
Charles, I'm sorry that you just, did, you know, that it didn't make oh, it feel horrible. like it was working harder on to recover your drive. You know, and I, I, I actually saw a slowdown in sales after that four week, that four week story, because I think oh. people were like, wait a minute, this thing takes four weeks no, to recover no, no, drive. No. It's like, no, 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 no. I mean, it will. And I once said it will take as long as you want it to. But in in, in this case. It didn't need any more time, so it didn't take any more time. So, you know, Charles was, was right. Spinrite did figure out that it was it did everything it was possible to do on that sector, fixed his drive, and, you know, it only took an hour. And it only typically takes a few hours. So, no, no, not a few weeks, a few hours. So it's, it's related maybe to overtime. how hard a sector might be to recover and how many bad sectors there are. Actually, one of the, yes, one of the, one of the problems is that if a transfer ever creates an error, the formal specification says I have to tell the BIOS in the motherboard to reset itself. Some BIOSes take a long time to do that, so that that process slows things down so so charles had a motherboard that was quick to reset and so, so it didn't take spin right that long to get through it and it's one of the things that i'm i will definitely be looking at in the future is seeing if i can uh, speed it up for everybody Good. by by not using the bios any longer which will everyone will be breathe a sigh of relief but for what it's worth typically it doesn't take four weeks it typically takes Hours. Do you work on UEFI uh, computers? Because now all the new Windows 8 machines, I think, are UEFI, not BIOS. Yeah, we do. We've never, because, they, you know, UEFI, UEFI boards are out there. They all have a BIOS emulation layer. Anyway, right. Yes. So you so can do can, an int 13 or whatever it is you do. Yep. We yeah. still work just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're going to we'll come back. we got some great questions for Steve Gibson from all yep. of you, and we will answer those. But first, a word from our sponsor. We talked about it before. Steve's vetted it, so we know it works. It's Pro XPN, open VPN-based VPN for you. If, if you're concerned about your online freedom and privacy, and certainly it's something we talk about a lot on this show, uh, you're going to want to know about Pro XPN. Protect yourself on open Wi-Fi spots at the coffee house, at the hotel, or the airport. Protect yourself against your ISP nowadays with a six strikes uh, agreement. ISPs may well be spying on what you're doing. CISPA, PIPA, six strikes. It's, it seems like uh, you need some help when you're surfing the net. ProXPN is a global virtual private network that works with almost any internet connection. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel through which all of your online data passes back and forth. Any online application can work with ProXPN, including, of course, your web browser, email, file sharing, instant messaging. Here'd be a way to make sure that your instant messenger uh, traffic is secure, at least to the endpoint. ProXPN keeps everything you do hidden from prying eyes and disguises your physical location as well, which can be useful if you want to access a website or online service that is not available to the location that you are in. So... If you, uh, for instance, are in the U.S., you travel to the U.K., you want to watch Netflix, it'll go, unless you're using Pro XPN. It's a 512-bit encryption tunnel using OpenVPN. For those systems that can't, we'd recommend OpenVPN, but for those systems that can't, like mobile devices, PPTP is also available. You could bypass not only Internet filtering and blocked websites, but geographical restrictions as well. 
They have servers all over the world, UK, U, US, Asia. So uh, you can always use one of, and you can just pick the server you're going to emerge from. That's what it, what it'll look like to the receiving site it, you're coming from. Um, Rayleigh is a nice system. Steve's vetted it, checked it, make sure it does everything you want. 20, 48-bit encryption for the key, 512-bit encryption for the tunnel. It's open VPN. It's a standard. It's open source standard, so we know it works well. You're going to want to try this, and we've got a very good deal for you, a very good deal, 20% off your account for the life of the account. So the way it works, you, you, they have a free account, and you certainly should try the free account. Give it a shot. The premium accounts, which are normally $10 a month, $75 an entire year, if you use our offer code SN20, SN20, you'll get 20% off for the lifetime of your account. The renewal, everything. That's less than 5 bucks a month when you get that yearly plan. I think that's worth it. Under $5 a month for this kind of security. And, of course, if you're not satisfied, you can cancel within seven days and get a full refund. Visit proxpn.com slash twit. Somebody just tweeted me uh, this morning saying, what's that VPN solution Steve Gibson recommends? Proxpn.com slash twit and use the offer code SN20. You'll get 20% off, not just for the first month or year, but for the life of your account. Proxpn. It's easy. It's simple. It works. All righty, Stevie. Got some questions for you. (laughs) Steve Arino. This comes to us from Dorset, and he wants to make sure we pronounce it right. So, Dorset, England. Andrew Stevenson. He uh, he says, apparently you've come to the attention of the NSA. Oh, how exciting for you, Steve. (laughs) Oh, you too, Leo. (laughs) Me too? Oh, crap. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to drop you a line and say that a recently declassified NSA document has appeared online that directly links, oh, God, (laughs) directly links to GRC and features Shields Up and Security Now. The document also names both of you. Oh, double crap. (laughs) I was reading a Wired article about the tips NSA has on spying using Google. Uh, that's at, uh, on the Wired uh, Magazine's Threat Level blog, which is a really great reading. Linked from the article is the following 640-page, 40-megabyte PDF, Untangling the Web from the NSA. If you go to page 583, hard-coded page, not the PDF reader page, you'll see a graphic of Shields Up. Page 605 also references the Security Now podcast. So we've got a shortened link, goo.gl slash f uppercase N, uppercase D-K-A. The author of this document has been redacted, but we know <laughs> we know he's a fan. Publication date also unclear, although February 2007 was the date of last modification. Well, wow, that's cool. I really it like actually, that. It actually, so, okay, a couple things. Did you go read um, it? Oh, yeah, so here I'm holding up a picture. Untangling the Web, Untangling. a guide to internet research. Yes, and I really would commend this. First of all, 40 megs. It's a huge um, thing because it's scanned. So it's, you know, oh. scanned images and compressed PDF. It's a paper, yeah. Um, yes. Um, but apparently it was classified. Now it's it's got, it's and it used to say uh, for official use only, and that's now been crossed out of the entire document. And it's it's got a doc ID Four zero four six nine two five. But the thing that was most flattering is there's a chapter, um, the second reference 
down on the documents page 605, which is not the physical page, but the, the actual number on the page itself. It's a chapter titled General Security and Privacy Resources. And it reads, the best defenses against the many dangers lurking on the Internet are awareness and information. Because security and privacy threats are so pervasive and increasing in number and potency, staying on top of threats and means of protection is crucial. Steve Gibson, rightly famous for his Shields Up website and free software, and then it's a e.g. Unplug and Pray, launched a new service with Tech TV's Leo Laporte in 2005. Every Thursday afternoon, and originally we were Thursday afternoons, they create a 20 to 25 minute, and originally we were less than half an hour, audio column about personal computer security called Security Now. The topics covered include personal passwords, he says, parens, a must read, NAT routers as firewalls, parens, another must read, honey monkeys, no, I'm not making that up. He has in parentheses. Unbreakable Wi-Fi security and bad Wi-Fi security. The audio broadcasts are archived in several formats, including a text file, a PDF version, and an HTML web page. There's also an option to receive an email reminder whenever the page is updated. Gibson has the ability to cut through the jargon to explain these topics clearly and to offer practical advice on how to handle personal computer security issues. And then they have a link, securitynow, grc.com slash securitynow.htm. So, wow, wow, that was uh, very cool. That is really neat. And for what it's worth, this is, I mean, it is a fabulous resource for, you know, I mean, as, as many people have noted, this stuff tends not to age the stuff we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, episode one, two, three, four, five. I mean, Honey Monkeys may be a little outdated now, but it was a fun podcast anyway. But you know, the 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 the, the essence of the of what it takes to understand security is timeless, and this is a great PDF for people to scroll through. And clearly, the person who brought this to my attention, Andrew Stevenson. Thank you, Andrew. Um, had to have, you know, gone through it page by page, and he stumbled on references to our work here. So that's really neat. It was very, yeah. very cool. Well, and now that it we've was come funny to the too, I, yeah. I, I tweeted this uh, to my uh, followers, and I got back a lot of like, "Oh, it's well, very much like your reaction." Yeah. You know, when it's like, uh, <laughs> "You're in a come to the attention somewhere. of the NSA." <laughs> that's a good thing. They're watching yeah. now, so hi. Yeah. And maybe, you know, they're they're learning some things, which is good, too. Uh, next from Matt, also in England, in London. That's pronounced London. Says, Steve, you forgot to secure your cookies. So he's got a long uh, little clip here. Well, yeah, what he did was, first of all, he's right. Um, I made a big point a couple of weeks ago of talking how I went to HTTPS exclusively. One attribute which cookies can receive is called secure. So in the set cookie header, which the, the the so-called reply header, the reply meaning that the server is replying to the client's query, in the reply header, you, you specify the cookie's name and then its value. You can also specify the, the path, which is to say for all 
future queries that are subsets of this path, that is within this path, you know, return this cookie. Um, But you can also say secure equals one. And what that says is only send this cookie in the event that you have security established. That is only over an HTTPS, which is an SSL TLS connection. And he's right. I have not gone back into the source of my so-called net engine code and added that everywhere. And I should. So as it turns out, nothing I'm doing requires secure cookies. My entire e-commerce system is cookie free. It operates with no cookies enabled and I can maintain session status and so forth without cookies. So the the only reason I have any cookies was for that analysis system, which allows me to generate statistics because I was curious to see how people had their browsers set and how different browsers were acting and so forth. And I just let it run for the last five years because I already had the technology in place. But Matt, you're right. Um, He also noted that, or in, in these reply headers, somebody had suggested I add, I think it was in our news groups, an X frame options header which is very cool one of the things that 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 can happen to a website is that it can be it can be loaded into another site's frame so a some other site would be actually hosting grc in a frame essentially it's a sort of a way of stealing our content and there are security implications, obviously, to that. I, you know, I want someone to come to GRC in order to get GRC's stuff rather than, you know, run us in a frame and perhaps play some games with users. You can actually have your server send a, 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 a response header that's X frame options and mine is set to same origin. And essentially that prevents... GRC from being framed in somebody else's site. So the browser sees that and will not, it will refuse to, and all the browsers support this now for a long time, the browsers will refuse to present content from a different origin if the server says only show this in the same origin. So it's it's an additional way of, of enhancing security, which uh, I, I'm glad to do. And I'm going to go back and add, turn security on on my cookies because there's no reason not to have that turned on. Yeah. So thanks for the heads up, Matt. Yeah. Richard and King. everybody oh. should. Third question Sorry. from Lone Doan. Richard wow. King in Lone Doan had his alarm bells go off. Hello, Stephen Leo, longtime British viewer. That's in England. The InfoSec Europe Expo has just been held here in London, and I've received loads of freebie updates. Here's one from Wickhill.com. It's their SSL intercept demo. Uh-oh. He said, it made my alarm bells go off. I completely follow your trust. No one is making people. All of our UK followers are just hating this right now. I completely follow your trust. No one. And I think I understand your teachings on SSL TLS. That is, my PC checks the SSL cert, its authenticity, etc. The thing is, for this SSL intercept... Uh, this thing is for SSL intercept, and it says it's a couple of devices that intercept the SSL TLS stream, decrypt it for reading, then send it out via a second device, which re-encrypts the stream. 
It doesn't say it uses its own SSL cert, nor that you have to install it into the browser of every PC as a trusted cert. And it says the process works in both directions. Now, in your recent episode, you explained how IE can be tricked into turning green and cause us to trust a spoofed EV cert. Maybe now it's just sinking in. Shouldn't we be paranoid about this thing? How can this be trustworthy? Surely this is a man-in-the-middle scenario. Imagining I am at work or somewhere and I have not been informed that this is in place. I try to buy my copy of Spinrite with my Visa card. And while I'm imagining the yabba-dabba-doo sounding in your office, this device is decrypting my Visa details and reading them. Hmm. If this is the case, then the SSL TLS model or its implementation is broken and we need something new or... Have I got this wrong? Please tell me I've got it wrong, Steve. Can you explain, please? Many regards and keep up the excellent work, both GRC and Twit, Richard King, near London, England. Okay, so hmm. I imagine he you does this link. He, oh yes, and there's a nice yeah. You can click the link, and that shows you a product which is being offered. Mm-hmm. It's exactly as he explains. There's one device that does the decryption, which, it, and from their diagram, it looks like they're not trying to be in the like antivirus spam and so and content scanning business they allow an intermediate device to do that and then you go back to their another one of their devices which reverses the process as exactly as richard says and re-encrypts it so that it goes off to the internet so um i, I don't mean to beat a dead horse I, I know we've talked about this a lot but it, it is it's a central to the security of the internet is SSL, and you know the the, the transport transport layer security, HTTPS, and what that means. So there is one fact that Richard didn't address. He mentions that they don't say that that your PC checks their cert or how authenticity is verified. It is the SSL ecosystem, the so-called PKA, the public key um, uh, infrastructure, is not as broken as this makes it seem because they have left out the fact that your, your browser must first trust this vendor to issue any certificate it pleases. Well, that's the horrible breach. That's the problem, is if they can get a certificate into your computer that allows them to, to synthesize certificates on the fly and your browser to trust those. So, so that's the gotcha. That, that's why this is generally, this is not going to happen if he's out roaming around in a coffee house or, you know, outside of his, of his, of his corporate environment because... The IT department first has to put a certificate into every employee's computer, which can happen transparently when they log in, for example, to a, to a you know, Microsoft has this technology, Active Directory, and also group policy systems, which are, which are enterprise network management technologies. So Microsoft can just slip a certificate in without you knowing the wiser because that's what their technology allows. 
making it appear transparent. But if if you were somewhere else, and I mean, and, and that requires that your your computer be configured and log into a, a so-called domain controller within a Microsoft network in order for all this to happen. But in general, if the, if you had a non-corporate machine, if you just brought it like a laptop in from home, hooked it up to the network, and tried to go outside over a secure connection, you would immediately get a notice, like I'm sure we've all seen before, where your browser says, whoa, this site is not trusted. You know, and in fact, I think on under Google, if you do that on Chrome, it says like, there's a, something fun like, you know, get me out of here. And it comes up all red. And it's like there's just no, it's very hard to push yourself through that warning because Google makes it very clear that you don't want to proceed. Um, Firefox brings up something similar where it's like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I want to go anyway. But so it is that kind of notice that you would normally get unless there's been some somehow some pre-existing modification to your laptop. So, so you know, this is the system that we're using. It's the best anyone has come up with. Um, the extended validation, I don't know if I mentioned yet that there's a new page on GRC that I finished a couple of weeks ago specifically discussing exactly how the, the enhanced validation EV certificate technology works and why we have confirmed that you can trust that in Firefox and Chrome. I know that I talked about this before. The page is finished. It's, it's up in GRC's uh, main menu, uh, so, and it's easy to find. So it's under the, I think, un, un, under the research tab. So, uh, so it's it's not as bad as Richard worried. You will get a notification unless you have essentially turned the the configuration in your machine over to somebody who controls it, and then obviously all bets are off. And I would presume this is really for business, right? To monitor employee traffic, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. and 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 there have you know they been. do that. I mean, this has been around yes. for years. Yes, I, I've had some pushback from corporate IT who said, gee, Steve, you know, you're painting this in a real dark fashion. I mean, this is just so that bad stuff doesn't come in over secure connections. We want to be able to scan our network to protect our employees. No one is looking at their mail. Nobody is, you know, looking at their Visa credit card payments. And and I completely agree my position is users should know that their credit card information is being decrypted and scanned. That's all I want. I just want users to understand that. They can decide then if they would rather wait till they go home to, to, to purchase something online. Because this I wish could they be would. Wrong. Please don't be shopping on my company time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So so that's all. And that's that's, that's why... my job. I do the shopping on company time. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. And, and we, you know, courts have upheld this. We've mentioned this many times. This is, uh, you're using uh, company resources. They have, yep. uh, and according to the law, which, by the way, differs for analog traffic than digital traffic the law isn't quite fair in that regard but from digital traffic uh the law has always said and courts have upheld that employers have every right to monitor what you do yeah and we do we just i you know i'm all about empowering the end user and so this is a way for people to verify yeah 
uh, and uh, uh, there's a lot of good reasons why a company needs to do that, not just malware. Uh, there's all sorts of good reasons. And, uh, and, a com- and if a company does do that, they should really have an Internet policy that states that clearly, I think. But they're not obligated to. Nope. Marsh in Sacramento wonders if Chrome has changed something. Hmm. Long-time listener. Love the show. Steve, I know you're a Google Chrome user. And the last few months, there's been a change to the way Chrome works for me. I wonder if you've seen the same change, because it sounds like the kind of thing you'd scream about. Hmm. A few weeks ago, random words on web pages started highlighting themselves. These become links to ads of various types. It's very annoying. Also, sometimes I click a link on a page, and in addition to going to the link, a new browser tab opens, taking me to a survey page. Hmm. Is this a Chrome thing, or have I been infected by some adware? Thanks, Marsh. So what I know is that it's not a Chrome thing. It's not Chrome. And I have seen sites not specifically under Chrome, but probably in Firefox. It works on all browsers. This is a crappy advertising model. And I knew that you would know about it, so I turned this over to you, Lee. Well, it's just, you know, I hate it. When I see this on pages, I never go back. Right. Uh, But it's a way of embedding ads. You'll um, highlight words kind of at random. And the thing is, it's deceptive, in my opinion. Because it looks like a, it breaks the internet, the, 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 the agreement about what the internet does. It looks like it's a hyperlink. Uh, and when your mouse hovers over it, you get a pop-up ad. Yep. Whenever I go to a page that does that, I, I, I just leave immediately. I think it's disgusting. And so it must be, so it must be that the site. JavaScript on the site. Yeah, so the site is chosen this approach to monetizing right. itself. And I agree, it's really intrusive. Just vote with your feet. I presume that the survey is exactly the same kind of thing. And JavaScript can do this. This is, you know, on mouse over, you know, pop up an ad. That's an easy thing to do. Yep. Uh, There are a lot of sites that do it. I wish they wouldn't. Uh, I understand they need to monetize, but I think that this is a very intrusive and unpleasant way to do it. So my guess is that Marsh has just been, by, you know, happenstance, choosing sites. He's just run across sites that are doing that. And so, as you say... Go somewhere else. Well, yeah, and not scripts will, will stop this. My my attitude is it's better to go somewhere else than to um, respond, retaliate by uh, consuming their content and turning off their monetization. You know, that's the deal with the devil they made. So you go somewhere else and read the content. It's never, it's yep. yet to have been on a site that I have to read. I can tell you that right now. Yeah, and, it, exactly. It's, it's some link you happen to choose through Google and it's like, oh, okay, I'm not going, I'm not going to stay there. here any longer. Yep. The other, the other potential possibility is that it is some malware on his system, um, and that that could very well be. Um, Absolutely, you know, no script or uh, not scripts in uh, Chrome would uh, would block that. Um, and uh, I would I would check for malware because that sounds like the kind of thing malware might do. If 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 suddenly if okay if you go to GRC right and you see any of that nonsense <laughs> exactly then you know, then exactly. You know Yes. If you're on Twit and you see it, then you know that it's something in your computer, not Chrome, that right. is uh, infecting your system. That's a good. That's a good test. Neither you nor I do that. Oh my goodness! And that'll I wouldn't never happen. dream of it. Yeah. Uh-uh. Dan in Canada offers a terminology correction. Steve, just uh, an FYI. You know, I knew when you did this, and uh, the chat room mentioned <laughs> it. I didn't. It's not important. Just, I know, but I figured it's what the worth hell. the correction in modern yeah. Linux systems. The in modern Linux systems, the user land tool to control the firewall is IP tables. IP chains is what you mentioned was Linux two point four. 
So in 2.2, it was IPFWADM. Then it was IP Chains. And actually, I'm more familiar with IP Chains. I messed with it back in those days. Currently, it's, yeah, currently it's and IP Tables. When I heard you say IP Chains, I knew what you meant. I don't, you know, I don't think that's a big deal. But that there's well, the correction. For what it's worth, if anyone, I, I thought it was the only reason I, the, the, uh, actually, the, uh, the additional reason I wanted to mention it is that what IP Tables... Assuming you are at Linux 2.6 and later. And you should be because there's horrible holes in earlier versions. Yes. Um, it does allow you the, the flexibility of accepting traffic on an incoming port and translating the packets so that they essentially are going to, they're mapped to a different listening port. That's cool because if somebody had... For example, IP tables running along with OpenVPN on their own little blue box fanless consumer router. One of the tricks to making sure you're able to reach your OpenVPN server running at home is to have it listening on many different ports. Because, for example, you might be somewhere which is blocking the default OpenVPN port so you can't get out. But it will allow you to certainly to surf to a web server. So you want OpenVPN also listening on port 80. You're not going to run a web server. You're actually running OpenVPN. But what IP tables allows you to do is to have incoming, to essentially to listen on port 80 and accept incoming traffic on port 80 and map that over to... 1190 something. I think I, I'm remembering 1191 or 1194, whatever the standard open VPN port is. And the idea is you could do this multiple times. So, so from the outside, you, your, your, your IP address is listening to a number of different ports. And that maximizes your likelihood of being able to, wherever you happen to be, get a connection through to your home router, and then that, of course, allows you to get out to the Internet. So IP tables is what you want. If I was just worried that someone might be digging around looking for IP chains and go, oh, shoot, I don't have it. Well, I meant IP tables. So thank you, Dan. Everything knows that. It's, uh, you know, that's how you know you're a Linux veteran, when you say yes. IP chains. <laughs> or uh, what, right. was, what was the bootloader before Grub? Uh, God, the one we all used for years. I can't remember. But see, when you say stuff like that, they go, Lilo. Yeah, if you say, hey, Lilo. I was, yep. I used Lilo, and we know you mean Grub, but it just makes you sound like a vet. Actually, I still have Lilo. Yeah, you my, see? My, <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see here. Because this machine goes running forever. Yeah, that's right. Lilo loader. Keenan in Linwood, Washington thinks, fitty dishits, fitty, fitty dishits, fitty See, I've been listening to rap music too much. <laughs> 50 digits should be fine. Give me 50 dig digits. Steve and Leo, in episode 4 or 3, you mentioned uh, 3.7 times 10 to the 50th when talking about the apparent, apparent mimina mumber. What's wrong with me? Of possible keys available in BitTorrent's new Dropbox-like service. You know what, Steve? That's a really, really big number. To put some perspective on how big a number with 50 digits is, 39 digits... In the precision of the value of pi is sufficient to calculate the volume of the known universe to the precision of one atom. Wow. That's yeah. obscure obscure knowledge. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Yeah. 
That that just that one caught me by surprise. I said, okay, we got to no, share this with our listeners. That is a big number. What I we don't yet know, as I mentioned before, what the protocol for BitTorrent's sync is. And I went looking just to make sure last night they hadn't posted it behind my back and hadn't bothered to tell me. I really think their communications guy was so good when I first talked to him that he will drop me a note when they have a spec ready and they have said they're going to make that public and they need to. What we know is that at least part of, we know that somehow it uses 256-bit keys, but that some user-controllable part of that is 168 bits, which is, which it, and so that's 2 to the 168 possible user-controlled bits and we don't know what the rest are, where they get the additional bits to, to, to pad that out to 256. That's awaiting the spec. But my point was that two, when I said on the podcast, two to the 168 is approximately equal to 3.7 times 10 to the 50. Because we can all visualize decimal numbers maybe more easily than bits. You know, 168 ones and zero bits we know that's a lot but we also know 3.7 times 10 to the 50 is you know a number with 50 zeros so what i liked about what keenan said was that only need or you only need 39 decimal digits in the precision of the value of pi to be accurate enough as you said leo as you read to compute to, to calculate the exact volume of the known universe to within the precision of a single atom. So we've got 11 more digits precision than that, and I think that would allow people to hide their, uh, their user-defined password without worrying about collision. And that is a, that's the concern people have, is how do we know we're not going to collide? Um, and it just, it's just there are so many of them, the likelihood is vanishingly small, and we'll wait to see. We really need to see more about the protocol. Everybody in the chat room thinks I'm having a stroke, and that's why I can't talk properly. Oh, Leo. <laughs> but I could tell you, I, and this actually, everybody should know this. And as you and I age, Steve, we should know this, and our loved ones should know this. The three signs of a stroke. If you think somebody is having a stroke, remember STR, you should ask them to smile. Because, you, you know, if you have a stroke, well, it'll be like, Half a, you know, like, like, it'll look funny. You, you lose some control of your facial right. muscles. Ask yes. them to speak a simple sentence. <laughs> Sally sells seashells by the seashore. City scent. And then, that's S, T, smile, talk, and then R, ask them to raise both arms. Okay? So I'm, I'm okay. I'm not having a stroke. And then if you want another one, if you want an extra, extra help, ask them to stick out their tongue. <laughs> and then uh, if the tongue is crooked... That's also Ooh. another indicator. Ooh, interesting. Okay, everybody should know maybe, these. Pardon me? Yeah, let's not have strokes. No, let's not. But, you, you know, the reason I mention this is because uh, if it, like a heart attack, uh, prompt intervention makes a huge difference. Yes, uh, In this it article, does. it's the doctor said, if I can get a, a stroke victim to the hospital within an hour of the stroke, I can reverse all damage 100%. Wow. Yeah. So there you go. So I just gave you a very important public service. And you sound fine, Leo, and now. I'm not I, no. I don't think. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> but I have lost. I, in the process of doing that, I lost the uh, questions. So let's uh, ah. let's get them back here. Hold on a second. 
We were on number six, seven. Here we go. Yes, we're now on seven. Yeah, David uh, Marilla. I'm going to say it like that. Could be Marilat. In Rochester, New York, has some thoughts about carrier grade NAT and privacy from the RIAA. Steve, I was just listening to uh, today's podcast, and I heard you uh, deal with questions. Will CG or carrier grade NAT, uh, network address translation, shield my IP address from the RIAA, the Recording Industry Association of America? I think I've got all the acronyms. Oh, no, IP is Internet Protocol. There we go. I think you missed an important... (laughs) Well... There were hey. four acronyms in that sentence. <laughs> and you want to prove to us that you have not And I have not had a stroke. stroke. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Holy cow. We're with you now. Will CG Nat shield my IP address from the RIAA? Uh, I think you missed an important part, point in your discussion. ISPs already share IP addresses between their customers using DHCP. That's true. Unless you have a static IP, you may get an IP address change at any time. Yep. But only one customer can use any given IP address within the DHCP lease period, often 24 hours. ISPs are switching to CGNAT merely because they can't get enough public IP addresses anymore, so they need to share a single IP address among several customers simultaneously, just as your router does in your home. Yep. So in order to determine where a connection came from down to the level of an individual ISP number, the RIAA will need to record not just the IP address, but also the source port, which will be chosen by the CGNAT. The ISPs in turn will have to log not just what public IP address their customer is using, but what ports as well. If the ISP assigns each port dynamically when a connection is established, that means they'd have to log each connection, and it would actually be able to verify the individual connection that the RIAA was complaining about. Another CGNAT strategy is to assign each customer a range of ports for an IP address. With this strategy, the ISP doesn't have to log significantly more information than they have to do without CGNAT. In either event, this level of logging is quite possible. And so I agree with you. CGNAT doesn't protect peer-to-peer file-sharing users from the RIAA. I detect a total of 27 acronyms in that letter. (laughs) Okay, so he makes some great points. Um, and one thing we encountered was interesting, and that was I think it was in the original announcement, which was an eight, which was, was I think it was Verizon was the first instance where we encountered this. The second one was with uh, BT, British Telecom, was announcing that they that a class of their customers were going to be doing this. The AT and T carrier grade NAT made a comment about only using eight customers per IP. And that sort of set off a little ding for me because what they could do is, much as David said, certainly there is a record-keeping process that ISPs now have to record which of their customers have, have which IPs at which time, both internal and external, that is, they're, they're having to, the ISP has to know what their, um, what their uh, well, if you don't have NAT, the ISP has to know what public IP they have given to their customers at what time. Once they have NAT, then they need to, re- to go to the extra step of mapping, of keeping track of the mapping between customers' internal private IPs and external public IPs because the only thing the RIAA or the MPAA or anyone else will be will, will see is the 
is the public IP, which no longer is assigned to a single customer. But this notion of port ranges, I found very interesting because, as we know, for example, Windows only uses 5,000 ports. It, although there are, the, the port number itself is a 16-bit quantity that runs from, from 1 to 65535. Windows itself begins assigning so-called client ports up above the server port space. The server port space is 1 to 1023. So the first connections that the Windows starts issuing to client programs making remote requests is port 1024. And it goes from 1024 up to 50, uh, what is it? 1024 to five, to 6024. That is the first 5,000 ports, and then it wraps around. But Unix systems often just keep on going. Windows never has done that for whatever reason. You don't really I didn't need know that. That's really odd. Yeah. Um, you don't really need all those ports. Um, the only time you would ever run out is if something was holding lots of connections open. And there's also, when you shut down a TCP connection, there's a wait period, which the TCP IP stack enforces so that you don't reuse the same port because you might have old packets drifting around the net with the, which come in, and that would get that would confuse the stack with, with, a re, uh, with, with a new connection between the same endpoints. So there, there's like, there's, it's called time wait. And if you ever do like a net stat in a command prompt, you'll see typically lots of things that say time wait. And that's the stack just saying, okay, we're kind of reserving this for a while until we've given it a few minutes, then we'll free that up again and those sort of disappear. But so, so the, the point of all this is that it would be very possible, and it'll be interesting as more information comes to light, for an ISP to map sets of their customers to blocks of external ports so that the RIAA, as David says, now would need to record not just the IP but the port number. So the good news is that's going to they're going to have to do some scurrying around in order to do that because it's no longer the case that just the IP would disambiguate. I got to use that word during the podcast, so <laughs> congratulations. I'm definitely stro I'm stroke free, <laughs> um, and and so they would they would need to use port ranges in order to determine who, you know, which of a set of customers was using that IP at that time. So anyway, there, there's still a lot we don't know. Interesting speculation about uh, how this is all going to turn out. But it absolutely is true that just the IP will no longer be enough to identify a person behind carrier-grade NAT. And I, you know, I think that's good. I like having people have privacy. Question eight is Jim, who wished to remain, uh, wishes to remain anonymous. I'm going to have some more chili. <clears throat> In Toronto, <laughs> wonders whether whitelisting means you can ignore patches. Stephen Leo, I work for a major Canadian bank, which shall also remain anonymous. Our, rank, our branch workstations run Windows in a very tightly locked down configuration. Non-admin personnel have extremely limited privileges. 
Internet access is tightly controlled. USB ports will not mount external storage of any kind. DVD drives are disabled. Antivirus software is very aggressive, and so on. All the configuration is also continuously monitored. So, if someone happens to turn off any of the controls, the monitoring software turns it back on within seconds. Our security department reviews all Microsoft patches and ensures they're all pushed down to the workstations. I was in a meeting recently, and they were talking about implementing whitelisting. Not only will they whitelist software, but also URLs for Internet Explorer. Now, here's my concern. Someone said that with whitelisting and everything so tightly locked down, well, we won't need to apply patches regularly. We can save them up and apply them, oh, I don't know, once every year or so. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe every decade. Just depends. I've given away the punchline. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that statement scared the willies out of me. You've mentioned on this podcast numerous exploits that are remotely triggered. I'm not really in the position to question the approach, but because my responsibility is solely for the applications that run on the desktop, but there are around 1,000 IT professionals in my building alone. The decision on when to apply patches will be made by a different department, and the corporate culture here is very siloed. It could be career suicide for me to try to tell another department how to do their job, even if I'm right in the long run. Am I being over-paranoid, or does whitelisting really reduce the urgency to apply patches? First of all, whitelisting is wonderful. What is it whitelisting? Is, the, the idea is it's – it's the I, okay, blacklisting would be you identify programs you definitely do not want to allow to run. Whitelisting is the reverse. You, you, okay, so, so first, in blacklisting, the idea would be that the, the default is to run everything except those programs. In whitelisting, the default is to run nothing except the whitelisted programs. So you reverse the model. The good news is that's great for security because random people cannot bring, um, potentially dangerous or privacy or security compromising software into the corporate environment and run it. Their computer will say, eh, that's not whitelisted. You need to go to IT department to get permission to run, you know, Quicken for, you know, to do your accounting on your machine at work, for example. So, so it really gives tremendous control to IT, and it's great for security. But as to whether that means you need to minimize patching, oh my goodness, no. <laughs> they're completely... They, they're unrelated. They're, ortho they're, they're orthogonal to each other. <laughs> They've got nothing to do with each other. But we're so, secure, Steve. We really are. Yeah, look, we're... Hey, we whitelisted Adobe Flash. Wow. What could go wrong? What could possibly how, go how wrong? Could, and of course, we need to read PDFs. We whitelisted Acrobat. Yeah. What? Yeah. Problem? With that? No problem. Java. We might need that too. Let's whitelist that too. Yeah. yeah. Hey, just to yeah. uh, just to cheer you up. Oh. So anyway, your answer is obvious. I don't know how we uh, get this guy. Maybe he's a whistleblower. He could send us. Well, in. maybe maybe these examples are so obvious. Yeah. That he can work this through the system, put it into an anonymous note that he leaves on, you know. Well, he the, does say he's in charge of desktop, right? So he could say, look, that's fine, but you must not whitelist Java, Flash, or Reader. And well, then no, they'll say, or, or they're going to whitelist it, but those you must update because right. we all know those right. you must update. Right. 
And maybe they'll kind of get a clue that, oh, gee, even though we whitelisted those, it doesn't mean that we no longer have to update our software. It's magic. But I, but I, I do salute this, this group for whitelisting. It is a pain in the butt because if essentially it locks down everyone's machine so that they can only do – like a, only run approved things. Right. But it's great for security. However, it's not a panacea. There's another word now that shows I have not had a stroke. Wow, you've disambiguated panacea, what? and uh, I think there's no stroke in your future. Hey, so this, what were you going to say about making me happy? Good news. Twitter has just implemented law, uh, two-step law, uh, authentication. Yay! Require an cool. authentication. You can turn it on. Go to your account settings in Twitter. Require a verification code when I sign in. You'll add a phone, and they'll text you a code. Nice. I wish nice. they'd support Google uh, Authenticator, but hey, that's wait, not wait, so wait. Bad. You're saying they're not? Well, I don't oh, know so, if they are. They'll so text you a code. It's so it's just, okay. So so it's just a. Um, well, I'll sign uh, up and I'll let you know. But right now, it's just we text you a code. Well, that's better than nothing. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I think it, maybe they're worried that. Well, now, okay. Giving users an option would be nice. Right. But clearly, they're looking at the nature of their demographic and saying, well, you know, we can't ask Granny no. to, to do Google. It's not Granny. It's the 14 year olds that use Twitter. <laughs> granny yeah. doesn't use Twitter. Granny's on Facebook. We now found that it's really the 14 year old. 14 year olds are going to end up with embedded OAuth, right. you know, like in their wrists at some point. <laughs> chip, the chip them. Chip them all. Chip, exactly. <laughs> chip them all. Another uh, listening, uh, another listener requesting anonymity, also in Canada. This is really an international show here. Steve, I wanted to alert you to a unique solution to poor grades on SSL labs that have been employed by two Canadian banks. I think we mentioned that uh, TD, TD was one of the banks that yep. didn't do so well, right? Block SSL labs from scanning them. Yay! TD.com, TD Canada Trust, and the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, CIBC, are preventing SSL labs from scanning, period. Wow. Uh (laughs) That's one way to fix the problem. Yeah. Initially, SSL labs would show an alert, at least for CIBC.com, that indicated something along the lines of, we've been asked not to scan this domain anymore. Now the page simply says, unable to test the requested host name. I think this practice effectively silencing criticism instead of addressing it is reprehensible. On the bright side, their major competitor, Bank of Montreal and the Royal Bank of Canada, both get glowing A's. They have not suppressed SSLF scans. Shame on TD and CIBC. Yeah. Wow. I just, yeah, this is one wow. annoyance with SSL Labs. Well, it's not an annoyance with them. They're doing a great service. They do offer a... We will agree not to scan service. Um, I implemented the same thing on Shields Up when I got a complaint from the U.S. Postal Service that, uh, you know, employees apparently within the postal network were using Shields Up and complaining about the fact that there were open ports. And so the U.S. Postal Service said, uh, you know, we don't want you probing our ports. This is this is a decade ago, hmm. but I still have a I have a small list of domains that I have agreed. You know that you know I and what I do is I try to punish them. I say, you know, we have been uh, you know administrators of your network have asked us to please not scan their ports. Um, you know, take that for what it's worth. Um, but it's 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 sad that 
TD.com and CIBC.com would choose to block SSL Labs rather than just fix their servers. They're getting Fs because they've got Ooh. SSL. They're still supporting SSL2, and people are – their hair's on fire. Right. I mean, there are so many problems with SSL 2.0 that there are – it's too easy to play interception games with that. You know, the, the, you know completely different from certificate – uh, abuses that we've been talking about. You just, you, the, if you have SSL 2.0, SSL Labs gives you a big red F. And that's what these guys are doing. So they said, oh, don't show that anymore. And to their credit, I mean, I understand the position SSL Labs is in. If you've got somebody saying, don't scan us, then you, you, you know, you have arguably an obligation not to, to probe them. Sounds like, though, maybe they've gone that the, the, the target domains have gone further and are blocking the IP, the source IP of SSL Labs scan. They're not using and, the the, uh, the system that SSL Labs set up. They're just blocking. Right. They're just saying, ah, that's easier. Stop, stop probing us. By the way, I'm just uh, checking on the Twitter. There's a checkbox require verification when I sign in. It says you need to add a phone to your Twitter account. This isn't on by default, but if you use Twitter, there have been so many hacks of Twitter. Even my account, I think, was hacked once. Um uh, not due to any flaw of mine, but actually a Twitter uh, 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 support person had a very poor password, and somebody got the it'll be got a interesting. It'd be interesting to know because I've got a bunch of iPads that all have Twitter of ver- various types of Twitter clients persistently logged in. It would be interesting to know whether it's possible to like force a reauthentication when you turn this on, or if it's only for logins going forward we'll we'll know by next week and i'm sure our listeners who are curious can we'll, we'll be finding out when they're hearing this um uh, moving along to what looks Number like 10. sadly our last <laughs> question from nick donnelly also in london well via saigon so that's ah. that's that's a new that's a new country wonders about BitTorrent sync love the show longtime listener and much more secure for it by the way somebody in our chat room suggested we should have a second podcast called security how and i really like that idea that's it's all about what to do yeah wouldn't that be good yeah and, we and, could just read we, we we could read a chapter of the nsa document yeah, every week, every week. <laughs> <laughs> nick says love the show longtime listener oh yeah i read that but i could always read it again love the show longtime listener <laughs> I listened with interest to the piece on BitTorrent Sync, the vast address space and the probability of brute forcing a key. I suppose the question is based on current technology, and let's say there are a million keys in use, how long would it take to brute force a key at random and get hold of somebody's files, say using a single laptop or 100 machine server farm? A week, a decade, a million years? I also find it helpful to frame the number of keys relative to the number of grains of sand in the world or atoms in the universe. Which is it? <laughs> that's that's too much work. Here's okay. to the next 400 shows, Steve. So we, I just this was sort of a placeholder for me to say what I ended up already saying. So I preempted myself earlier that we just don't know anything more than everything I shared in our first discussion about BitTorrent Sync. I can't wait to give it a podcast because it is it is such a cool service. What I do think it is safe to say though is that it these keys are not brute forceable. The only way to brute force a key is to, brute force means try. You try them all. You start at, you know, A A A A A well start at A, 
then go through the Z, then and, and so forth. So you'd have to be brute forcing a, a long key. And the problem is this is an inherently a network transaction. The beauty of the fact that they there is no central repository. I think that's what unnerves people. They like the idea of like, this is my username. Does anybody have that yet? Oh, no. Okay. Then that's my username and here's my password. Well, the fact is we see constantly these databases being breached. So you don't want that to be anywhere. You don't want there to be a central repository of user of usernames and passwords. The beauty of this, and this is why from everything I've seen, this thing, this whole system seems so well designed, is that you come up with this really long super secure token which is hashed down to something. We don't know if it's 160-something or 256 or what it is because we don't yet have the spec, but we're hoping that's still on the way. And then you submit that to a distributed directory, which is going to take time. So you don't want there to be a typo because it's going to have to go out into the Internet, across the net, poke around, do whatever it does, and 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 like find the other machines which it believes has this key and then put you in touch with them and then you try to negotiate an agreement based on a shared secret which is this key and then you connect there's no way to do that fast and so this is not brute forcible that's one of the the fundamental aspects of this and i don't think i i don't think i explained that well enough cuz you know we weren't trying to attack this yet, we need to have a spec in order to really say, okay, if we were the bad guys, what would we do? But all appearances are that there isn't a way to use, you know, to, to like, you know, test billions and trillions of these things per second. And, you know, even if there were, we're at, you know, 10 to the 50. So, you know, a billion is nine zeros, a trillion is 12 zeros. So, okay, take those off, and now you've still got a lot of seconds remaining from your 50 zeros. So <laughs> I think we're okay. Oh, you can calculate the volume of the universe. <laughs> Down to a single Down atom. A single atom, and all you need is 50 digits. Yeah. Of pi. Actually, 39. 39 uh, digits 39 of pi. digits of pi. And we got 50 digits. And we got 50! Yeah, we're okay. <laughs> Just choose a good. Well, actually, I'm not even sure you choose it. You can submit something. No, no, no. It, it you rolls. You can roll it, but but it gives right. you a random choice right. each time. Yes. I don't know how random yes. it is. That's another question. But all of these things, you know, potential flaws. But without a spec, you just don't know. Yep. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna shelve this for the time being until we get a spec, and then we're gonna have a wonderful podcast dissecting BitTorrent Sync. I love it. I haven't converted to it, but I love the idea, and I have it installed on all my machines. I just haven't, you know. I mean, use Dropbox, and Dropbox works, and it's kind of done, and I yeah. don't really need to do anything about it. But yeah, and it, it fits your your security needs, whereas yeah, uh, crypto. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And next week is CryptoCat. We will analyze the security technology. So maybe I'm not sure how much of a propeller head spin this will be, but uh, I know we'll have fun talking about an absolutely bulletproof, secure, multi-platform, cross-browser, uh, very nice from everything I've seen, well-engineered, super secure check system. 
CryptoCat, Crypto.Cat. Interesting. I can't wait. Episode 406. Yeah, I mean, I don't need secure chat, but... uh... But, uh, yeah, again, yeah. lots of people want it, and so I think we're going to have it. Yeah. I use, uh, you know, the other issue uh, is that, my, you know, Google has now rolled out Hangouts in a global way, and that's a, a message system I think a lot of people will be using. What is .cat? Do you know? Good question. I don't know what, what top-level domain that is. <laughs> what country It's kind of cool be? that it, yeah. yeah. I like that there, there there's one is dot. C R Y P T O. C R Y P T O. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And T O is Tonga. Yes, exactly. Catalan, which is, is a, a, a province in Spain, but is also a cat. It's really intended to highlight the Catalan culture and language. Barcel- yeah. Barcelona is in Catalan. And Very it's a cool different language. It's not Spanish. Got crypto. Yeah. yeah, it's not territorial. It applies to the whole Catalan-speaking community. And, that, and I guess we have Castilian, and that must be a different one also. Castilian is it's traditional Spanish. Right. And Catalan is really not that much like Spanish. It's Spanish-ish. Huh. <laughs> but it's very different. Um, and if you go to Barcelona... I'm glad, five, I'm glad five people are keeping that alive. Oh, you're going to get in trouble. Uh-oh. There's a big Catalan Uh-oh. separatist movement. <laughs> you don't want to mess with the Catalans. Uh, they're great. Uh, and believe me, if you ever go to Barcelona, you'll have a deeper understanding. You should go to you, you and Jenny. Can you take a week off and go to Barcelona? She's my traveling girl. So she will love uh, this. You, she's been. She's she a, must have been. She's in. She's in New York right now, and I've been having a ball on Broadway. So, oh, uh, now see, why didn't you go with her, Steve? You don't like uh, like uh, musical theater. You're not a musical theater guy, are you? Although I have to say... <laughs> You'd love no. Spam a lot. You'd love the I, Book I, of Mormon. We both enjoyed The Great Gatsby, speaking of... Oh, you liked uh, it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't love it. I loved Star Trek, but I liked I liked it. I thought it was, I thought it was fun. I think I, I liked the first half better than the second half. It kind of slowed down. Yeah, Sarah, fell, Sarah Lane fell asleep in the second half. <laughs> <laughs> By the way... There is she's a, on some strange drugs right now. She's like maybe she, that's she's it. like she was so funny. She's like she's me, staring, probably. She's having a stroke. Staring at the screen. It's meow.cat. Look at this. Meow.cat. There's a website. Oh, cool. <laughs> that's a name. All right. Uh Okay. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. This is uh, we well not quite yet. I do want to mention that we do security <laughs> oh, now every Wednesday, please. 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern help time. Me pay, help, help me pay my bills. Eighteen hundred UTC. You should go to grc.com and buy a copy of Spinrite. Help Steve pay his bills and get a yabba dabba do as a thank you in his uh, office. There, we heard a yep. Star Trek uh, sound uh, earlier in the uh, show. The hailing whistle. Yes, yeah. I had that set to one of my uh, incoming email. Yep. So that's a good idea. I'm going to do that on my phone. Have that be an incoming email. I like that. That's good. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, you can also get, while you're at GRC.com, 16 kilobit versions of this show. That's the smallest audio format. And text transcriptions written by an actual human being, Elaine Ferris, who does a great job. Hi, Elaine. Uh, she's actually superhuman, Leo. You superhuman. Know, really. Yeah. yeah she's Fastest amazing. fingers in the West. Uh, you also uh, can get all sorts of other free tools like, well, Shields Up, now recommended by the NSA. <laughs> uh, you should put that right in the front. Uh, as as recommended good. by the NSA. Yes, that's good. Am I probably just skipping that? <laughs> <laughs> if you want uh, full quality audio or even video of this show, because Steve is good looking today in his, in his uh, specs. 
you can uh, get those at our site, twit.tv slash SN. And the Honey Monkeys episode of uh, Security Now, by the way, is SN number two. Ooh, I thought two. it was one, but somebody told me in the I chat room two. it's two. And I, how many times do we regret not numbering from zero? I mean, that's a mistake you can Foolish. only make once. We can go back yeah, and make I, number zero I, and just pretend. Know. What we were thinking. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, wherever podcasters you could subscribe to, you know, like iTunes, you can get a copy uh, automatically every week when we put it out. Or all the yes. Which would be very nice. We will see you next week, next Wednesday, Mr. Gibson. And uh, yes, we, uh, we with, with any luck, we'll be talking about CryptoCat. I hope so. If, if, if we're not talking about it, something some... horrible has happened. It's <laughs> happened. In security <laughs> or privacy. Thanks, Thanks Leo. Security now.